0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 5th, 2021. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater, and I live in Canby, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 3rd, 2021 are the following The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study meeting is 18182 18182. And 1 18183 for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Group. This morning, A Vision for You presents Recipe for a Miracle. We like to call it that wholesale miracle. It's for everybody, everywhere, every time. And that's what's taking place here as a result of working the 12 steps. And it is for you, and for you, and for you and for you, so grateful to be in this deal together. Are you with me? So let's take a look. Step one teaches us about the physical craving and the mental obsession of the real compulsive overeater. It's there where we can see in our own lives the complete despair, the utter defeat, the vain attempts we put towards this deal all of our resources human and material that we've thrown at this deal over and over again that did not change one single thing not one single thing to help reverse or even slow down this driving force of addiction to food we are utterly crushed by that revelation when we get to it if we are honest enough to admit That after that study and that identification in, that that's who we are of step one. Then and only then, it becomes the foundation of our recovery. It is critically important to concede to our innermost self that we have crossed the line of no return. And we've accepted our problem. What's our problem in step one? Powerlessness no human power can touch this deal we must see the madness in step one before we can go along with the idea of needing to be restored to sanity our thinking is our trouble the central operating system to our beliefs and our action that's the trouble on our own power Did we ever remove our craving or our mental obsession? Do we have that history for ourselves? Nope. We are powerless over the will to stop. In step two, we are given the nature to the solution of this powerlessness. That solution is that we had to find power. And it had to be a source of power greater than our will, our beliefs, our moral slants our self-reliance, our honorable best intentions, which are basically all on autopilot. We might even say that it is the kind of the nature of our nature to employ those kinds of things. We know no different. We go about living mindless, where compulsive overeating is concerned. We are so tightly wrapped in them Those things that we hold on to like a drowning person holds on to a life preserver. Imagine that for a minute. All those things somebody's asking us to let go of so that we can be restored to our right mind. We're hanging on to it for dear life. It's got to be greater than that, y'all. It must be greater than that. That sort of power promising, promising everyone to restore us to our right mind and it must have depth and weight. Step three, we must quit playing God. What does that mean? What does that look like? We can no longer demand of other people running their lives, can no longer demand of ourselves setting things up, how they're going to go, what am I going to do, how am I going to live? We've got to stop doing that. So we will now be making this all-important decision to turn all that over our entire will, our entire life over, laying it down, unreserved, no hesitation. We will no longer be controlling, fixing, manipulating life. We're going to wash our hands of it, humbly turning it over to the power that we might live full, abundant, and purposeful lives as recovered compulsive overeaters. That power that will relieve us of our compulsive overeating and restore us to sanity if we earnestly seek and surrender. Recipe for a miracle is outlined in the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the title of our presentation today. It's all outlined. It's all there. A miracle and its promise. This miraculous miracle will be the focus today of our presentation. Today our guest speaker will address the pathway to this miracle pointing the way through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's there for you. Janet B. teaches from her personal recovery utilizing the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous from her own experience and wisdom. She has been in these rooms for a good long time helping the still suffering compulsive overeater, that's her heart. She has dedicated her life to the service of sponsoring many and facilitating grassroots recovery meetings herself. Janet hails from the fabulous state of New Jersey, an East Coast woman, y'all. A Vision for You is very grateful to have her with us today presenting on this very important piece. Please help me welcome to this morning Janet B. to the line. Good morning, Janet B. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you so much. Um, good morning, friends.
1: It's a recipe for a miracle. When I was a kid, my mom used to make this most amazing meatloaf. And so when I got older and got my own apartment and started cooking or attempting to cook, um, I didn't go to cookbooks to learn how to make meatloaf or just throw ingredients together haphazardly in a bowl. I wanted something very specific. I wanted my mom's meatloaf. And so I asked her for the recipe. And that way, I could duplicate her exact meatloaf. Well, recipes are all well and good for dinner menus. But when I came into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, I needed a different kind of recipe. I needed a recipe for a miracle because nothing short of that, no food plan, no sponsor, no meeting, nothing saved me. And I tried. Um, I went to my first meeting just shy of my 16th birthday. Already by that time, I was binging uncontrollably. Um, I spent my next six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous actually getting worse. Um, When I first started, I was binging and purging. Maybe I was throwing up maybe twice a week. After six and a half years in OA, I was throwing up up to six times a day. I actually had to have surgery to get my esophagus retightened. I stole food. I stole money for food and I was a mean, nasty, self-centered person. Um, As I said, I went to meetings for six and a half years. I never stopped going to meetings. I burned through about 50 sponsors. And even though I desperately wanted to stop, I couldn't stop. And then when I was 23, I met Donna. I met her at an OA convention where, by the way, I was eating compulsively. But Donna stood up in a meeting and she said, She hadn't binged in a year. A year. I'd been going to meetings for almost seven years, and in that time, I never got 30 days. My record was two weeks, and there were plenty of days I couldn't even make it to lunch. But there was Donna, who stood up and held this big blue book in her hand, and that was when I was introduced to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Recipe for a Miracle. Well, what even is a miracle anyway? So, The dictionary definition is a surprising and welcome event that is considered to be the work of a divine agency. Well, for us addicts, what is that surprising and welcoming event? I think the answer is on page 25 of our big book where it says this. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And this is what's miraculous, what the miracle is. God coming down from heaven or wherever God hangs out and entering into my heart and into my life. And what does he do there? He does a renovation job on my heart so that my priorities become more like his priorities, so that my selfish self-centeredness is replaced by his love, his love for life, for his fellows, and for his universe. A miracle is when God comes down and changes the soil of my soul so that the illness of compulsive eating cannot survive there. It gets uprooted. God basically kicks the obsession with food to the curb. I wanted that, and Donna introduced me to the program that gave me the recipe. So the recipe is found on page 57 of our big book at the end of the story about the minister's son, who ironically, a minister's son, was an agnostic. It's the story of a man, a minister's son, obviously, who was confined to a hospital because of his drinking, and his story starts on page 56 of our book. Um, I'll just read a couple excerpts. One night, when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend's gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, If there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later alone in his room, he asked himself, Is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? While pondering the answer, he thought, he didn't just say, I have this thought in my head that they're all wrong, so they must be. He pondered, he didn't trust his own thinking. While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell. Then like a thunderbolt, a great thought came. It crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? And what did he do? The only thing we can do, right? When we experience God. The man recounts that he tumbled out of bed to his knees In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. His alcoholic problem was taken away. That very night it disappeared. Save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. God had restored his sanity. So right after finishing this story, the big book says, what is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Okay, guys, so now they're telling us not only that we can have a miracle, but that the elements of a miracle are simple. That's crazy. But then they give us those elements, the recipe for a miracle. First, circumstances made him willing to believe. Then, He humbly offered himself to his maker, and then he knew, then he experienced it. Well, that sounds too simple, too good to be true. All I need is to be willing to believe and to humbly offer myself to my maker. And those are really, if we think about it, the first three steps of our program. Let's take a look at how he did them and maybe some tricks of how we can do them. First, he says that circumstances made him willing to believe. And it's pretty obvious that the circumstances they're talking about is his alcoholism that has him committed to a hospital. Um, the minister's son full story is in the chapter of the book called Our Southern Friend. And on page 214, we see a fellow patient asking the minister's son if, he's, if he thinks he is hopeless. I know it, replies the minister's son. Well, What does it even mean to know that we're hopeless, to know that we're powerless over food? On page 24 of our book, it says that we're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink, or for us, first compulsive bite. Well, that's a lot of words like memory, defense, suffering. I mean, what the heck does that all mean? So let's break it down. Normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? The book talks about we don't have, there's a failure of the mechanism that keeps us from touching a hot stove. Well, here's what I think that means. In my memory are stored these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm about to touch a hot stove, Let's say cleaning up after I'm making my mama's meatloaf. Um, my memory will send a little thought running across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, Stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. And so I don't touch the stove. Or another example personal to me, I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store or visit a friend who has a cat, my memory will send a little thought running across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, cats will give you asthma attacks. So again, my memory keeps me away from danger. My memory keeps me in check. Now let's talk about food. Um, I remember in college I used to binge on these certain kinds of cookies. I mean, I binged on a lot, but this was my um, my favorite. It would come in a box of 20, and I would always say, I'm just going to have one or two, but we all know how that story ended, with the box of 20 and more. So in my memory were all these data points of how I would promise myself I'd just eat one cookie, but I'd end up eating the whole box. So there I go again, about to buy a cookie, a box of cookies, promising myself, I'll just have one. And my memory goes to send a little thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, you won't be able to stop at one, you'll eat the whole box, you'll hate yourself, you'll gain weight, you'll find yourself with your head in the toilet again, don't do it. Except when it came to food. The bridge between my memory and my conscious mind was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check and I had no defense against the first compulsive bite because I had a broken bridge. And the minister's son who didn't believe in God realized he had no defense against the first drink. And he said to his friends in the hospital, I'll do anything. And that included asking, can all the worthwhile people I've known be wrong about God? See, he became open-minded about God. But there's a great chasm between being open-minded about the possibility of God existing and trusting God enough to surrender our will and our lives over to his care. Well, how do we bridge that chasm? How do we bridge that gap? so that we're able to trust God enough to surrender to him. Because we really can't surrender without trust. Um, A couple of years ago, I had severe pain in my right side. I tried to take care of it myself with Advil, but it didn't get better. You could say I was powerless over the pain. Um, And I was actually on a plane ride from Montana and was scared they might actually have to make an emergency landing for me. That's pretty unmanageable. Um, I clearly had a problem that I needed outside help with. So I went to my doctor and she said, you need to go see Dr. X, he's the chief of surgery at Valley Hospital. I trusted her so I went to Dr. X who took out my appendix and the problem was solved. Based on me trusting my doctor and my consultation with Dr. X, I came to believe that Dr. X could restore me to health And I made a decision to allow him to cut and remove a body part from me when I was anesthetized. You could say that for those few hours, I actually did turn my will and my life over to Dr. X. Well, okay, now we know all about my appendectomy surgery, but let's get back to the book and see how that fits with trusting God. Before we continue, I want to define the word trust. To trust means to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something, and for our purposes, God. So how do we come to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, and strength of God? Well, I think the first way is research, right? Even though we may not call it that, our research takes the form of learning about what's happened to other people who've trusted God, to investigating. That's the main reason we tell our stories. Um, On page 29, it tells us that in his personal stories, each individual describes from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. Page 50 tells us that the founders of AA all agreed on one thing. Um, I think that's pretty funny, right? Imagine two addicts agreeing on anything, but they're saying that at least 100 of them agreed, and it was this. On one proposition, however, these men and women were strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. This power, power with a capital P meaning God, has in each case accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. So my evidence is really all of you. If all of you tell me that once you believed that God could restore you to sanity, And surrendered your will and your life to him then your obsession with food or alcohol began to be lifted well that would certainly be fertilizer for my trust that's why there's stories in the big book and why we share our stories at meetings to prove to newcomers that God is trustworthy Um, and our book also gives us lots of clues if we want to do research about God I'll just say one real quickly. On page 45, it talks about the main object of this book, and it says its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. Well, if this power greater than myself is going to solve my problem, then that gives me some more clues about God. This God must be pretty smart if he can solve my problems because I have two master's degrees and I couldn't solve it. This power must have a consciousness, right? Like a wind is is a power greater than me, but it would certainly be silly for me to expect the wind to sit there and figure out how to solve my problem. This power must be strong because this illness was way stronger than I am. So this power had to be stronger than the illness. And finally, and most important, if this power were going to solve my problem, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother solving my problems? So that gives me more clues about God. Um, But because we're the kind of people we are, there's generally more hurdles we have to get through in order to really trust God. And this involves a lot of looking at ourselves. Um, If I tell you that Dr. X is a great doctor and can take care of your appendix, You'll have no trouble believing me. But when I was told that God could take care of my eating problem, um, well, that was a little harder for me than to believe in Dr. X. And here's why. Um, Page 55 of our book tells us that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. However, this is the however, this idea may be obscured by calamity by pomp, and by worship of other things. Now, when I was told about Dr. X's great surgical skills, I didn't have any kind of block preventing me from calling him because I had appendixitis, right? But when it comes to God, our book tells us that we typically have three blocks, calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. And these things obscure my belief in God much like a cataract Obscures my sight. So it's my job to sit there and do some analysis and work with my sponsor to get rid of these three spiritual cataracts. So the first one, calamity, that's the one that Bill Wilson had. Um, on page 11, he talks about wars, burnings, and the devastation he'd seen in Europe during the First World War. In fact, he went so far as to say that the devil seemed to be the boss of the universe. So his belief in God was obscured by calamity. How did he get through that? Well, remember, Ebby, the man who carried the message to him, didn't argue with him. He simply said, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And pondering that, I realized that when I say to God, he shouldn't allow human trafficking or cancer or my kids to not listen to me, what i'm really saying is that i'm smarter than god and i know how he should run the world on my wedding day guys i wanted sunshine i prayed for sunshine but it was pretty much a monsoon poured if god had answered my prayer if he answers every bride's prayer for no rain on her wedding day well then there'd be no food supply because no crops could grow so i need to realize That when I'm saying God shouldn't do X, Y, and Z, what I'm really saying is that if I were God, I wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And I am so underqualified for God's job. So the next thing that obscures our belief in God is pomp. I looked this one up. An ostentatious boastfulness or vanity. Ouch. That was me. Me thinking I'm too good to need God, that I can handle things on my own. Well, if that's my issue, all I really need to ask myself is, how well did I handle food on my own? How well did I handle anything? How well could I handle anything even now on my own, my job, my marriage, my parenting? Chances are that if I could handle everything well, I wouldn't be spending, you know, hours a week on Zoom meetings and pre-pandemic in church basements at anonymous fellowship meetings. My track record was abysmal. I came to the point where I knew I, could, I couldn't do anything myself. And the final block, worship of other things. When I was in college, I had a boyfriend who was abusive. Um, but because I was a good addict, instead of kicking him to the curb, I turned him into an idol. I lived for his approval for about three years. If he was mad at me, and he was mad at me a lot, I was depressed. If he was happy with me, which wasn't too often, I was over the moon. Um, Clearly not a healthy relationship, and thankfully we parted ways. But when I care too much about another person, whether that person is my spouse, my child, or my boss, I'm in trouble. Or if I care about other things too much, my job, my possessions, my status, my right to leisure time, how much my kids care about me, then I'm in trouble. I've made that person or thing into an idol. An idol is anything, even if it's a good thing, that I put ahead of God. So those are some of the blocks mentioned on page 55, but remember what it also says. Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. What a beautiful thought. And so pretty, I'm going to say it again. Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. That means that God planted in me, in all of us, the idea of himself. It's as if when he created us, he said, I want them to know me and to know how much I love them. So, along with planting inside of them two lungs, two kidneys, a stomach, a heart, I'm going to plant the knowledge of me. I'm going to make the knowledge of me a fundamental part of them. Remember, guys, our book says that God doesn't make too hard terms with those who seek him. How could he? The knowledge of him is planted inside us. We just have to water it. And I think the way we water it is with prayer. For someone who doesn't yet believe in God, I think an I'm not sure prayer is just fine. It can go something like this. God, I'm not sure you exist. And if you do exist, I'm not sure if you care about me. But if you do exist and you do care, I need some help. The worst thing that can happen is nothing. You're talking to dead air, right? But what if there really is a God? And what if that prayer is the catalyst that sets things in motion and causes God to spring into action on your behalf. Um, Another way to work through our trust issues is by going through the ABCs on page 60, right? The first A usually isn't hard for most of us. Grab my book a second. That we were alcoholic or compulsive eaters and could not manage our own lives. Well, we took care of that, right, with um, the broken bridge and seeing how we're powerless. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism or compulsive eating. Well, that one's really not too hard. Um, I can't really rely on the group because what if the whole group goes out and binges? Or what if when I'm in trouble, I reach out to the members of my group and I can't reach anybody? So that's not too hard. And then we get to C to believe that God could and would if he were sought. So let's break that down slowly. Um, So I would generally ask someone, do you believe that God could restore other people to sanity? And they generally say yes, because you look at a meeting and you see all these people restored to sanity. Okay, then next, do you think God could restore you to sanity if he wanted to? He may not want to, we're not saying he wants to, but could he? Does he have the power to if he wanted to? And people generally have to say yes, right? It's like, well, he could, he's God. Then the next part, do you think God will if you seek him? And that's where we generally get into trouble when we say, well, he could, but he won't for me because. And I think when we go through these becauses and are able to answer them, then we can come out on the other side really believing that God will restore us to sanity. So here are some reasons that um, people might give for saying, I, don't th- I believe God could restore me to sanity, but I don't believe he will. Um, sometimes people say, I don't deserve it because I've done this really bad thing. And in which case we can just tell them, that's why there's a ninth step. Because all of us have done these really bad things. And we work our way through this process and we get a chance to fix it. Or someone might say, well, you know, yeah, maybe God will help people with cancer because it's not their fault, but I caused this. This is my fault. And then I would say to that, well, if you cross the street against the light and got hit by a truck and got your leg broken, Would you not go to the orthopedic surgeon because it was your fault? None of us would ever do that, right? Um, But when it comes to God, suddenly I would get all noble and say, well, I can't bother God. And here's what I would say. Bother God. It's okay. Um, And sometimes people say, well, God could, but he won't because I'm not worthy. And, you know, perhaps if we would go to, a psychologist and pay them lots of money they would help us figure out why we're worthy but I think there's an easier way worthiness is never a requirement in this book it never says you know we have to be worthy it says we have to be willing so it doesn't matter if we feel worthy or not it doesn't matter if we have high self-esteem or low self-esteem remember if I break my leg whether I have high self-esteem or low self-esteem, I'm going to the orthopedic surgeon. My self-esteem doesn't come into play. Whether I feel worthy or not doesn't come into play. I just know I need help, and the orthopedic surgeon is a guy who can help me. When I was in this illness, binging, I needed help, and God was the only one who could help me. I certainly wasn't worthy. Another thing that someone might say that I said, is I've tried it so many times before and it didn't work. And with that, I then think about my cell phone, how I may try a hundred times to take a picture with my cell phone and fail all hundred times. And then someone, probably one of my kids, comes along and says, Mom, you're pressing the on-off button. Here's the picture button. And suddenly, even though I'd been able, unable to take a picture a hundred times, now i've been shown the right button and i'm willing to use it and i can take great pictures and finally someone may say okay yeah i believe god would he's willing to but it says if he were sought," and i'm not sure i'm really seeking him and to that i would say you know the deal here is if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get him then you're ready to take certain steps so if a person says they're not willing to go to any length, first, I would ask them to write down what they're not willing to do, right? Let's let's get it all concrete and out on paper. And if they say, yeah, you know what, I'm not willing to do this. I'm not willing to go to meetings or whatever, then we can say, okay, you know, but this is what's required in order to get better, um, But as long as we're willing to do the work, it doesn't matter if we feel worthy. It doesn't matter if we've done bad things. It doesn't matter if we've tried it 100 times before and it doesn't work. God can restore us to sanity. And so we can trust him. So let's say we clear away these blocks and that we now trust that God will restore me personally to sanity. That's a great start and a necessary start because we don't get any power until we trust. Admitting we're powerless doesn't give us power. Getting a sponsor, getting a food plan doesn't give us power. Trust is the beginning of our infusion of power, like a pick line of grace going right into our hearts. On page 46, it says, as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. Notice that. We begin getting power when we begin having faith. Well, how come? What's the correlation between power and faith? And I think it's because faith is the currency in the spiritual world. In the physical world, if I want something, I go to the store and I hand the cashier money, right? Money is the currency or a credit card. Money is the currency in the physical world that allows me to get food and clothes and gas in my car. But I can't hand God a $20 bill and ask for power. The currency in the spiritual world is faith, generally activated by prayer. Faith or trust is actually currency in the spiritual world, and gets things done. Remember the Wright Brothers discussed on page 52? It says that their almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Now, I would have thought that their mathematical ability was the mainspring of their accomplishment, but it was their faith. Our book says that without that, without their faith, nothing could have happened and the same with us for us it's our faith our trust that's a catalyst for the miracle but trust is only half of our equation Um, page 46 says that once we believe we get once we believe right we get power and direction provided we take other simple steps and the next step is surrender to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him, which is an action step. If I'm a diabetic and I trust that insulin has helped you, and I even come to believe that insulin will help me, but I don't inject that insulin into my arm, the fact that I believe, that I trust,
2: is useless.
1: Um, In the AA 12 and 12, on page 72, it says that, We could actually have earnest religious beliefs, which remained barren because we were still trying to play God ourselves. So I need to add surrender to my trust. Now, there's a temptation to say, okay, God, I'm willing to believe. Prove yourself by removing my food obsession. But God isn't a genie in a bottle. And if I'm asking God to prove himself to me, well, then I'm still playing God. So what does surrender look like? Um, I would say the first thing it requires is honesty, rigorous honesty. And I think sometimes we toss those words around so much we forget how important they are. If we aren't honest about our food and everything else in our lives, we may as well take a big black magic marker and write the words keep out God across our hearts. God absolutely will not coexist with dishonesty. What else does surrender require? So I think this question is best answered by the exchange between our old friend, the minister's son, and his mentor, who was actually a fellow patient at the insane asylum where he had his miracle. Um, So let's set the stage. Two men, both committed to an insane asylum for drinking, having a chat in the mentor's room. And I'm now on page 215 of the big book in the story, Our Southern Friend. So the minister's son says, I get out of my bed and go to the man's room. He's reading. I must ask you a question, I say to the man. How does prayer fit into this thing? Well, the man answers, you've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you said, there isn't any God, or he hasn't done anything for me. Is that right? Yes, the minister's son replies. That isn't the way, his fellow patient-turned-mentor continues. The thing I do is to say, God, here I am, and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me and all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does, the minister's son answers. And then he says, I return to bed. It doesn't make sense. Suddenly I feel a wave of utter hopelessness sweep over me. I am in the bottom of hell. And there a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. And as we know from reading his story, he never drank again. So what was the key here? He didn't just surrender alcohol. He surrendered his whole life. He gave God all of it. God could take his alcohol obsession, his marriage, his job, everything. And that was my experience as well. I remember being at a meeting, and right before the meeting, um, I was shoving bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door. And I went to a meeting, and there was this person who was recovered and who I was afraid of. And I went to that person and I just said, will you help me? Will you sponsor me? And I was asked, what are you willing to do? And I said, anything. And I meant it. I think if I'd been asked to crawl on my hands and knees through glass, I would have said, okay, show me the glass. I meant it. Um, And then I left the meeting after circumstances made me willing to believe. I was willing to go to any length. And for me, I said a prayer. I had always believed in God but I thought God was there for like war and poverty and children starving in Ethiopia. And what did he care about me? Um, But I remember shortly before that someone had said to me, because I said, I believe in God. I have a relationship with God. And someone said to me, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I couldn't answer. I had no answer. And I, I had to think, maybe I really don't have a great relationship with God. I have a barren belief. I'm a practical agnostic. So I left that meeting and I went outside and I said a prayer. And I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and what you wanted from me. I'm willing to start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And for me, just like the minister's son, It was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. Um, But we have to admit it's a little tricky, right? When I surrender, do I just sit around like a lump of clay expecting God to do everything, including shampooing my hair? Well, of course not. Um, Surrender is defined as abandoning oneself entirely. But I think for us addicts, I would tweak that definition a bit to say, Surrender is doing the right thing and leaving the results up to God. On a practical level, what does that look like? So generally we have goals, and the goals are often good ones, such as raising respectful children or get my husband to stop smoking. Um, But they're my goals, and they're outcome-oriented. It's radically different when my goal is simply to do God's will. For example, if my goal is to have respectful children and I try my hardest and do the right things, but my children still aren't respectful, I'll get resentful and fearful and probably start doing a lot of wrong things like screaming or manipulating in order to get my will done, to reach my goal of having respectful kids. But if my goal is simply to do God's will, I will probably raise my kids the exact same way, but I'm less likely to get angry, fearful, and frustrated because I'm not focused on my results, having respectful children, but only on my obedience to God. In other words, the goal shifts from achieving something, even if that something is good, to simply doing God's will. We're out of the results business. That's what surrender is. I measure my success by how closely am I walking in obedience to God, not am I getting what I want or people doing what I want. By far, the biggest challenges with surrender for me have been with my children. Um, I have to surrender their future physical health, their mental health, my dreams for their future, my hopes for their religious practice, and even my demand that they love me the way that I want to be loved. All the things that the big book, would lump together as my little plans and designs. Surrender means I try to raise them right and leave the results to God. One thing that helps me with this is that I picture myself swimming in you know, one of those big lap pools where each lane is cordoned off and I'm swimming toward God. I visualize myself swimming toward God. But if I veer into another lane, then I'm not focused on God. So the future, my daughter's choice of boyfriends, what college classes my kids are taking, whether my son is eating healthy food or not, whether or not they go to church, all those things are in another lane. And if I'm looking on at them, at those things, my focus is off God. So surrender simply means I keep my focus on God and his will for me. So we've got a recipe for a miracle. Willingness to believe, then surrender to God. Is that it? Do we just give our lives to God and we're done? Uh, Nope. That's the focus of this talk today, but guys, that's just our beginning. Page 64 tells us that though our decision, and they mean our decision to turn our will and life over to God was a vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect. I love that line. Our recovery can be permanent. Um, it could have little permanent effect unless it once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves, which had been blocking us. And so we have to continue on by clearing away the wreckage of our past, right? The working through steps four through nine, and developing a spiritual way of living that includes clearing away the wreckage of each day, praying and meditating so that I grow in understanding of God and effectiveness to my fellow man and in service to others and a continual um, commitment to practice these principles. That's the last three steps. And when we live this way, um, the miracles keep coming. On page 100, it says that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently be living in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. So remember my plans are limited by my imagination, but God's imagination is limitless and the new and wonderful world that we can live in, no matter what our present circumstances. I think it's the fourth dimension that Bill references on page eight, where we can know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. See, not only is this illness progressive, recovery is progressive too. The happiness, the peace, and the usefulness is progressive. And that has been and continues to be my experience. Um, instead of that abusive boyfriend who I had in college, I have a great husband with whom I've just celebrated 21 years of marriage. I got my kids through the teen years with minimal battle scars, and now they call me from college a few times a week and they actually ask my advice on things. And instead of aimlessly wondering why I'm here, I have a great sense of purpose. I have the best friends that anyone could want, I have an amazing fellowship. And for over 38 years, I've had freedom from the obsession that had me roaming the streets of New York City in the middle of the night, spending my rent money on food. And as Melanie said at the beginning, I'm not unique. This program offers us wholesale miracles, meaning available to everyone. As it says on page 153, the age of miracles is still with
0: us. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Janet. That was very complete and comprehensive. How beautiful that was. Thank you. What I want to add to this, everyone, is that if you're interested in getting Janet B's contact information, stay with us. We'll give that information out at the conclusion of this meeting. So I wanted to offer you today the share ID number for this particular meeting. And that share ID number is 1819018. One nine zero, so that you, for your listening pre- <laughs> pleasure, get my tongue untied here. You can go back and visit that. The lines are now going to be open for questions. If you have a question for Janet, please unmute your line by pressing star one on your phone keypad. Offer your first name, the first letter of your last name, and once you have asked your question, would you please re- mute your phone by pressing star one again? Who would like to ask? Janet, a question today.
3: Abby S B.
0: I got Abby S. Like Sam, Abby? Yes. And then somebody B. Marie B. Audrey M. P. Marie B. And Audrey M. P. Anyone else this morning with a question for Janet?
4: Judith S. P.
0: Judith S. P. Okay, so let's go with that particular lineup. Yes. Everyone, if you would else, would you press... Uh, I'm sorry, who is that?
3: At Rivka R. from Baltimore.
0: Oh, hi, Rivka. I gotcha. you. Okay, that's it. Right. That. Uh, we're D. going to get him coming
5: more. Hi, Jim. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Gotcha.
0: Okay, so if I could get everyone except for Abby... To press star one, so the line can be nice and quiet for recording. That would be great. But after Abby, will come Marie, then Audrey, Judith, Rivka, and Joanne. Good morning, Audrey. I'm mean, I'm so sorry. Good Good morning, Abby. Everyone else, star one, please.
3: Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for your share today. My question is, do you have a time limit when you sponsor people when doing their fourth step? Um, how do you stay engaged with them
6: while they're independently working? Like if you don't do stop hearing from them,
1: um, just curious about that. Thanks. Oh, um, yeah, I give it to them in chunks. So I would say, um, let's say do the first three columns of the resentment inventory and let me know when you're done. And then we do a little work on, you know, what comes next. Um, I maybe go through some parts of the book with them um, but I do it in chunks. This way it's not go out and do the whole thing and then they disappear. And I move them along quickly. It's like, okay, do these first three columns and text me as soon as you're done. And then I'll give them work on the next part. So that's what I do. Thanks. And if you
3: if you don't hear from them for a couple of weeks, like, what do you Oh, do? no.
1: It's, I mean, if I tell them, let's say, do the first three columns, I expect to hear from them by, like, the next day or so. And if I don't okay. hear from them, I'll I'll send them a text saying, hey, haven't heard from you, you know, and then generally they'll say, oh, yeah, I was just finishing, you know, I'll be done tonight. Can you talk then? But no, I don't I don't let them go for a couple of weeks. It's I only give I give them a small enough chunk to do quickly. I want to keep them mo- keep it moving really quickly. OK, I mean, the yeah, the book says a strenuous effort. So, you know, we want to just keep moving on this. Otherwise, we're going to relapse.
0: Thanks. Thank you so much, Abby, for your question. Uh, Marie B., your question, and Audrey, you'll come in after. Hi, Marie.
7: Hi, Marie B. from Texas Central Time Zone. Um, I didn't have a question as much as um, uh, thank you for this. I'm definitely going to. Question
0: only time. I'm so sorry, Marie. We only have a chance for questions this morning.
7: um, Yeah, questions only, please. Yeah, you mentioned uh, um, that God could and, um, you know, struggling with um, thinking that God would want to take the time to deal with a, you know, to deal with my eating disorder. And I struggled for many years with that, you know, that, um, yeah, God could, but I think he's got better things to do. And, um, you know, I never... I guess my question is, you know, what would you tell a sponsee to help them get past that? I know on page 60, uh, there's a line that says God could and would if he were sought. But I'm wondering if there's any words that you could pass on to a sponsee that would, you know, immediately get them out of that. Not immediately, but, you know, give them the thought that, you know, yes, uh, God would step in.
3: Um, for yeah.
1: You to... um, so I think I I would ask them why they think God wouldn't. Right. Because there's a reason. And we always want to think we don't want to have these like thoughts like boogeymen in the closet. We want to get them out. So I would say, why do you think God wouldn't for you? And then I went through, I think, like five different things in my talk, the reasons people would usually give and that how yeah. we can answer them. But I would, Mm -hmm. so first we have to see why they think he wouldn't because our answer depends on what their reason is. If they think, well, I've done this really bad thing. It's one answer. If they say, well, I've tried a hundred times before, um, but there's always an answer.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Great talk. Thank you, Marie B for your question. Next up is Audrey MP. Would you press star one, please Audrey MP and ask your question.
8: Hey, good morning, special edition. Thank you Melanie and thank you for um thank you for the share this morning. My ears, I'm a swimmer, so my ears really perked up when I heard, you know, when I'm swimming to God in the lane. And I heard a metaphor used regarding your family and I'm and I'm wondering I'm wondering, well, I'm thinking two things. One, I swim in lanes. And sometimes I have to share a lane, right, in a public pool. And so I get distracted, the outside stuff, with what the other person's doing in relation to what I'm doing. And on, I'm wondering if you could share, I don't know, it,
5: it, what
8: your abstinence looks like when you're swimming to God in your lane. Like how you work your program of entire abstinence when you're swimming in their lane. I heard the metaphor about your family. So uh, I'm trying to figure out how I can swim in my lane towards God in my abstinence. And I'm wondering if you've thought about your abstinence that way.
1: I'm not quite sure I understand the question, but so I'll just give it my best shot. Um, I believe my abstinence is contingent on my relationship with God and doing, living my life the way I think he would have me. So um, I've got to keep my focus on him. And if I do, then God will keep me safe and protected.
5: Thanks.
0: Okay. Thank you.
5: Hi, did
3: you call on me? Triska? Hello. Yes,
5: I will actually. Hi. Yeah,
0: I had to actually do this do this turn after that particular oh, question. Oh, sorry, yeah.
3: sorry. Okay. Yeah,
0: that's no problem. Judith S P.
4: Hi. Hi. Uh, this is Judith S P. from Maryland. Grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Thank you, Melanie, for your service and <laughs> Janet. Um, <clears throat> wonderful share. Um, I was with you in my. Uh, connection to God and your share and when it came to family and when it came to um, expectations of others um, that's what I'm struggling with right now Um, when you said and I've heard this before doing the right thing and leaving the rest up to God how do I keep the focus on God when after years and years of compulsive overeating and being neutral with the food now and working on and accomplishing a lot with my food behaviors, which put me into the food, I'm now dealing with some very deep down emotional uh, knee-jerk reactions to being irritated uh, having expectations of others, and I say, "No, no, 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 Judith, don't expect anything from anyone else um, i i I don't know how in every moment to keep my focus on God, particularly in my relationships with family, and you know maybe others, but primarily, and I appreciate. Your description of your shift with your family, and if you can speak a little more on keeping that focus so that I do my part and then I turn to God and let things be. Thank you for letting me ask my question, and I'll mute. Thanks. That is a
1: great question. Um, And I've done some work on that. So here's what helped me. So when I saw, especially with my children that I kept doing the same 10 steps over and over. I kept getting irritated. Um, A lot of the stuff you mentioned, how I got relief is at one point I did an inventory on um, the character defect of idolatry and idolatry, you know, doesn't mean I'm bowing down to statues. It's what am I putting ahead of God? And these things that I saw, it was things like the desire that my children love me. And I saw that I was making such an idol out of that, that I would not, um, when they were younger, discipline them, or even when they were older, set a boundary out of fear that they wouldn't love me. I was making an idol out of their love for me. And then I was also sometimes making an idol out of how their life turns out. That was just too important to me. So, here's so I looked at it and then I treated it like any other defect. I said, "God, I you know, have I've made an idol out of my kids' future and how much they love me." And then I did the 7th step, asked them to remove it. And um I would say now when things come up, I'm just aware of it. But it's almost like a tiger has become a kitty cat. it doesn't have teeth anymore, so now, for instance, um one of my kids I know my kids go to the same college, so I know when the registration is due for next semester, and one of them's right on right on target, and the other one isn't. So I said to the other one who isn't, um, you know if the due date is December eighth and otherwise there's late fees and Instead, and the child, this child, I'm thinking probably won't get it on time. And so it's just like making, setting a boundary, which is if this child isn't registered on time, doesn't show me the bill and say, okay, mom, I'm all set, the child will pay the late fees. That's my boundary. And because I no longer have an idol, a golden calf out of my children loving me and adoring me. I'm able to keep my boundaries and not be annoyed. If if this child doesn't get the registration done, okay, the money will come out of their pocket. But for me, I had to smash the idols, treating them like, you know, all the things I um, had idolatry over, treating them like any other defect, inventorying them, going over, going over that inventory with someone, asking God to remove it. Seeing if I owe to men's and then coming up with an ideal on how to live in the future
0: that way. So that's what helped me. Thanks. Thank you very much, Judith SP for your question. Rivka R. You are up next and then Joanne will come after you. Hi. Hi, Rifka. Hi thanks so much. Um, thank you, Melanie. And thank you so much, Janet. It was just absolutely fabulous. And my question is if you have more tips on the pause, um, I really related to, I my children are all grown up, but I have dozens of grandkids, and, um, you know, I, I sometimes just kind of jump in before the pause and make a mess of things when I'm seeing things that I don't like in them, which are really in me. And I'm just wondering if you have some tips on the pause, because I
7: keep saying, going into the situation saying, oh, just want to be a conduit for God's love, and then something will erupt, and I'll I forget everything. So anyway, that's my question.
1: Yeah. So I would say two things. The first thing is what I just um, talked about before about idolatry, that if something is causing me so much distress that I can't hold my tongue, then there's something that maybe is too important to me. That is more important to me than my relationship with God. And the other thing I think is prayer. I've, um, I've written out um, and found a lot of prayers that um, helped me in this. Um, One, it's, I actually heard it from a woman who I met on a cruise. She was a recovered alcoholic and she called it the shut up prayer. And it goes like this, God, please keep one hand on my shoulder and the other across my mouth.
0: (laughs) So I think smashing our idols and prayer. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much, Rivka. Next up is Joanne B. Your question, please.
2: Hi, I'm Janet. Thank you so much for your fabulous share. Uh, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the girl that I ran into yesterday at the baby shower. She's saying, Joanne, how did you lose all this weight? I just called my doctor. I have to get gastric bypass. And I said, oh, I had gastric bypass, and I was so sick for years and years. I said I have this wonderful program called Ovaries Anonymous, and I tried to tell her a little bit about it. And I'm just wondering, Janet, can you recommend steps for me, how I can introduce this new mom to OA? Do I refer her to a newcomers meeting in her area where she lives? A zoo meeting is a vision for you to advance for a newcomer. I just want your suggestions on how, like, steps to, to start a newcomer. Thank you.
1: So actually the first thing I would always say is like to read the chapter working with others and see what's recommended there and then pray and ask God, um, if there's a specific way you could be helpful to this person, right? That's what we're supposed to ask in our morning meditation each day. How can I be helpful to the still suffering compulsive eater? And now you have a name to put to that kind of generic prayer. And, um, I would say maybe go to a meeting with her, either in person if there are, or a Zoom one, and then arrange to talk with her after, or a phone meeting. Um, I'm like, I don't feel comfortable commenting on this meeting is good and this meeting is bad and this meeting's advanced and this one isn't. Um, I say that's, God can guide you in your meditation. But whatever meeting um, you recommend to her, talk with, meet up with her afterwards, either in person or um, on Zoom or, you know, just on the phone and have a discussion about it. Um, And I think also the vision for you, phone meetings, um, plenty of new people come on, but I think, again, the key would be to talk to her after in case she hears terms she didn't hear before, has questions, and then you could be there to
0: help her. Thanks. Thank you very much to Andy for your question. Hey, you know what, there's time left for additional questions this morning. If you would be interested in asking Janet a question, just press star one in your phone keypad. and Give her your name, you're the first to initiate your last name and perhaps your state if folks want to get a hold of you later.
3: Hello. Hi. Hi, All this left. is Simone Compulsive Eater.
0: So Simone, is that what you said?
3: Yeah, and I think someone just came right after me too.
0: I think so too. Yeah, Mm -hmm. hi. Okay, Simone, you'll be first. Who's next? Paula P. (laughs) Paula? Can you tell? Yes. How would I spell that? Paula P A U L A, and I'm from Georgia. Very simple. Okay. Anyone else with a question this morning? Lisa N from Wisconsin. Hi, Lisa. Anyone else? Pam R, Texas. Excellent. Hi, Pam from Texas. Okay, let's go with that list and see where we go with in terms of time. We have Simone first and then Paula from Georgia, Lisa from Wisconsin, and then Pam.
3: Hi, Simone. Hi, thank you. Um, So my question would be for someone that is kind of been in the program for a while but has real just, apprehension about what abstinence is and what it's not and I just started with a new sponsor a couple months ago I guess my question would be um how would I connect and really trust in a higher power um if I'm having trouble connecting with that higher power I know it's there I just I don't know where to start to connect to really have a like build a relationship with a higher power.
0: So I guess I would say your sponsor is
1: probably the best resource for that at this point and and the big book. When I you, if you heard my talk when I met Donna, the first thing she told me to do was read the first hundred and sixty four pages of the big book. So okay. you might want so you might want to just take the book and go through it and just take notes on everything it says about how to get a relationship with God. Okay. And um,
3: I think it's for, reason- for you
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for your question, Simone. What is the first inverse of your last name by chance, please?
3: M, as in Mary. Got it, thanks,
0: thanks so much, Simone.
3: Thank you. Next
0: up would be then Paula from Georgia. Paula, what's the first initial of your last name? P. P like Paul. Okay, got it, thanks so much.
5: Thank
6: you. Um, Thank you so much to both of you for um, uh, the wonderful presentation. This is uh, actually my second day. I attended my first OA meeting yesterday, as well as a Zoom. And, um it's just been so wonderful to hear how i um, your stories are my stories, so um yeah. I'm in the right place, so thank you for having me. I just had a question about the big book. I did purchase that yesterday at my first meeting, and I was wondering how um since it's also new, you know what the big book is and how it works with. Uh, the program and how it can be useful to me just starting out.
1: Yeah. So in the um, intro or actually not even the intro, just when you open it up, it says the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And in the preface and the forward, it talks about how this is the basic text. It's an instruction manual. So it's like if I were a diabetic and I needed instructions on how to inject insulin, they'd probably give me a, right, there'd be someone who would be teaching me, but they'd probably give me a manual also. So, you know, if you have a sponsor, your spon- her job would be to teach you, but this is the manual that gives the instructions. And also in okay. the back, it has stories of people who've recovered with the hope that, you know, we can identify and feel like, yes, I'm just like them, I must have this thing too. So an instruction manual
0: and a manual of stories that give us hope. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paula P., for your question this morning. Lisa Mm -hmm. N. from Wisconsin, you're up next. What's your question? Hey, Mel, thanks for your service. And Janet, I always love to hear you talk. Um, Tell me when, Janet, you or what you were doing at the time that you started really feeling the fire or the passion to help people as, as you do? Um, I think as I, as I got better, it just,
1: at first I I would do things just because I knew I had to do things to be helpful. Um, I'm trying to think back. I was living in New York city at the time and you know, I, I mean, I couldn't sponsor. I couldn't really help people. So I like made sandwiches for homeless people. I did things because right. Our program tells us we have to, to work and self-sacrifice. That's, that's the key. That's how we enlarge our spiritual life. And then I think it, by the time I was through the steps, um, I mean, I'm thinking back now to my first sponsee, and I was really excited to work with her. Um, so I think as I got to step 12 I was I was excited and just through the years I don't know God's just like fanned that
0: flame in my heart. Thank you very much Lisa and for your question. Pam R from Texas, your question please. Yes, yeah, thank you so
3: much um Janet, I'm just like you, and I must have this thing, too. If you could please clarify, I'm not sure I heard correctly, but
0: when you were talking about having, like with your children, the same resentment over and over, that you went through a process of looking at, was it, did you have an idol? And then any unresolved resentment? To
3: find your ideal, did I understand you correctly, and could you elaborate or correct me um, so I'm not quite
1: sure, but I'll just kind of repeat it. So I saw that I was having the same resentments and the same fears over and over. Uh, for me, underlying everything was the fear that um when I got older and my kids didn't have to listen to me anymore, they wouldn't love me. That once they turned 18, they would leave home and never want to talk to me again. And that when I was an old, and that when I'd be an old lady, I would be all alone on the holidays because my kids would want nothing to do with me. And I saw that that fear was driving um, my parenting. Like I would be afraid to discipline them. And then I would just get overly angry out of this fear. So when I saw I was making an idol out of how much I mattered to my children, I surrendered that to God. I just said like the same way I would surrender any other defect, like God, please remove this idolatry of how much I matter to my children. And after that, um, All I can say is things just got easier. They just got easier. That I could say to one of my kids now, you know, honey, if you don't get registered for next semester on time, you're going to have to pay the late fees. And if they get mad, they get mad. I don't feel like, oh, they're going to get mad at me and then never talk to me again, and I'm going to be all alone on Thanksgiving the rest of my life. That's gone. God took that away. When I surrendered, when I identified the
0: idolatry, and surrendered it to him. Thank you very much, Pamela, for your question. Hey, it looks like, Janet, there's time for a couple of more questions to take on. Are you up for it? Yep. Excellent, very good. Anyone else have a question for Janet this morning? It looks like we have time for two. Brenda A. Hi, Brenda. Anyone else? Ellen C. Ellen C. Oh, great. We'll take it. Hi, Ellen. So first up Hi. will be Brenda, and then Ellen, you'll be next. Hi, Brenda. Your question, please.
3: Good morning, Brenda A. We're covered by the
5: grace of God in New York one day at a time. Good morning, and thank you all for your service. Janet, I have a question. I've heard you um, speak to when working with a sponsee who has slipped or you know, was having difficulties in getting abstinent on how to be patient and kind with them. Can you just give me a few pointers, give all of us a few pointers on what that looks like? So
1: um, I would say that depends on so many circumstances. And the best thing I could do is to say, I actually spoke on this line before and did a podcast called the pitfalls, pitfalls in recovery or pitfalls leading to, it has the word pitfalls in it. And I talk about the things that lead to relapse and a way a sponsor could help them. Because it depends, right? If they relapse because they're not willing to go to any lengths, then my obligation is done. Um, So I would just maybe direct you to that podcast.
5: Okay. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Brenda. Thank you so much, Ellen C. Your question, please. Thank you.
5: Good morning, uh, Johnny. Thank you so much for your talk. I've heard your last podcast. I thought it was also brilliant. So thank you so much. Uh, my question is about goals and outcomes and and being goal oriented. And I I, I want to understand. How one continues to have uh, passion and burning desire and motivation and um, and and being able to be inspired to go for outcomes and at the same time surrender um, and leave the outcome to god it's it's a very confusing um Concept for me. So I would appreciate if you could explain that more or elaborate on it. Thank you. Um, Can you give me an
1: example so that I can understand?
5: Sure, sure. Um, Well, being able to, so this is the end of the year, and being able to set goals for what I would like to accomplish in the new year. Um, in my career, in my relationships and um, and being inspired to be able to do that because the inspiration to do the hard work every single day in order to do that, but what stays in front of me is what I want to accomplish, and you talk about letting go of outcomes, and so if I let go of if I keep doing this this is the outcome that I'm going to get, then it's almost like dribbling a ball up and down the court without having a basket. And I, I, I don't know how to stay motivated and passionate if I don't have a goal. And at the same time, you know, I, I understand uh, not making it more important than God, but I can't reconcile those two things. Okay. So again, it's hard for me
1: to answer without like a specific thing. Like, um, but it's all just say one, like, let's say I have a goal to, um, I, I say it, it's hard for me to do it. Cause I'm thinking even if I say a goal to be promoted this year in my career, I would even say, you know, my goal is to do my best at my job. And, you know, hopefully I get promoted, but if I don't, It's you know, my success depends on how well I'm following God's will. So Mm -hmm. I think I can have goals to like be a nicer person or things like that. But my uber goal, my overarching goal on everything has to be to do God's will. That's, that's my goal, not to get this person to Change, I had to give up my goal to get my husband to stop smoking, um which by the way, he did, but not because not because of me, not because I made him or anything um, but I ha- always have to keep that ahead of me to
0: to do God's will. And thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much, Alan C, for your question. Let's take one more to see if we can't squeeze out a little more time here. Okay, Janet? (laughs) Sure. Anybody else like to ask a question and then we really will close on this one. Maybe we did. Esther asked. Esther asked. We'll take Esther. I had a question. I had a question.
9: Richard, Um, is that you? Richard, yeah.
0: Okay, let's go with Esther and see how fast we go, and then we'll see if we have time, Richard. Thanks so much. So I had to uh, shut off for a second and came back on, so I hope this question wasn't um, asked already. My question is, what is your practice after you've taken somebody through the 12 steps And, you know, then they're living in 10, 11, and 12. What do you do? What's your practice with um, your sponsees after that? Do you talk to them still? Do you talk to them once a week? Do you talk to them every day? Do you not talk to them at all? That's my question.
1: Um, So assuming that they still want to talk to me after that, um, I so what I say, I, I stay loosely in touch with them. Like they can always text me if they need me, call me if they need me. What I try to do is I pair them up with another recovered person. Like hopefully I had someone else who they would sync with, who and they got through the steps around the same time and they become like um, partners. They do the nightly reviews together. They talk about stuff together. So they don't need a sponsor per se. They just have like kind of an accountability person, but I'm always here for questions and um if they need me and I see a lot of them at meetings. So sometimes, you know, well, and some of them still send me their food. Some of them still send me their nightly reviews anyway, but I don't talk to them like as frequently as I did when I was taking them through the steps.
0: Thank you very much Esther F for that question. Hey, Richard, if you want to press star one, we have time for your question. Press star one real quick.
9: Yeah, I just had a. I guess it might be better for me to ask you in person someday, but uh, you know, uh, the whole idea of a uh, of, of recipe for a miracle uh, has eluded me almost my whole life for like the longest time. And I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm coinciding with this miracle today that you were here to, to speak about in higher power and uh, how uh, I originally was an agnostic, but. I had other addictions, and you know many addictions today. They have all, all these twelve different twelve-step groups. So I'm trying to consolidate uh, someone who has uh, something like uh, ten different addictions at most, ten groups that I could go to. And um, anyway, I'm just looking forward to, to trying to finding a good sponsor that would fit. That would. Help me do a lot of writing and stuff. And I didn't know if you had any viewpoints on that and how, uh, you know, waiting for your miracle and uh, how people might interpret that as meeting, uh sponsors that have multiple addictions or something. I don't know. But.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, I
1: don't have any opinion on
0: that. Thank you very thank much. You. I think that's a good one, too. For Perhaps, Richard, you can stay around and, and grab up Janet's phone number, you know, too, as well, another time. And as she mentioned, you know, we focus on compulsive overeating here. So thank you so much. And thank you, everyone for the questions this morning. Thank you so much, Janet, for your presentation. You know, the, just the question time just actually enhanced everything else. And so that was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to just really thank you so much. You've given so much of yourself today. And again, I want folks to know that we will in fact get that contact information of Janet after the recording has stopped. So hang around here for that. But let's close the meeting like we do with all of our meetings um, by reading from page 164. this is the great fact for us. Abandon yourselves to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you.